and it's the nation that, that God loves. But because of Jesus, we make a shift. It's an incredible shift if you think about it. And that's to go from nation thinking to individual thinking. The early church gathered together for worship and prayer. And the early church expanded. Join Pastor Hook as we learn lessons from the book of Acts as God grows his church. We are in episode three of our study, uh, God's, God Grows His Church. This is the, this is the book of Acts study and uh, written by Dr. Luke. We left off yesterday with the disciples in Jerusalem and they realized that they only had 11 because Judas had killed himself. And so they get a 12th disciple by, by uh, doing lots that, you know, somebody, it's like the roll of the dice. It's a game of chance and Matthias wins that battle. And so my, Matthias is now the 12th disciple. I don't think there was anything necessarily in scripture that says you have to have 12 disciples, but that's what they had. So 12 apostles, 12 disciples, 12 of the original 12 that were with Jesus. Uh, they had 11 and now they've got a 12th again. Pulled from within those who were kind of wandering with Jesus, but hadn't been touched on the shoulder by Jesus to say, follow me. They just kind of voluntarily followed Jesus. I mean, they all did, but Jesus kind of went and tapped Peter on the shoulder, James, John, Andrew, all the other disciples. So before we get to Acts 2, we have to remember that they are, they are back in Jerusalem, the early church, the people that were following Jesus and the apostles, this includes the apostles, the 12, the brothers of Jesus, Mary, some other women, maybe some other people. They're all, for whatever reason, back in Jerusalem. They've all seen the resurrection. They've all seen Jesus ascend into heaven. And now they're like, what do we do next? Not entirely sure what to do next. Now, maybe Jesus said, there's a second chapter of this. And the second chapter is going to involve the Holy Spirit. So you all need to be together at one place. Doesn't matter where, but they're in Jerusalem. So they're all in Jerusalem. They could be inside. I've always seen that they were outside because if you go to, uh, you just look and see that they gather a crowd, you think that they're outside. But right before this, they're inside. Um, probably inside somebody's house, maybe in a large house or something like that. But you have to be a pretty large house to have all of these people together. You got 12 disciples, you got the women, you got the brothers of Jesus and another crowd. So you're probably looking at maybe 30 or 40, 50 people. And you can fit 30 or 40, 50 people pretty comfortable in a, you know, a thousand or 1500 square foot house. Uh, but you're going to be in every available, I mean, and I don't know the architecture of the houses back then, but maybe it was more open spaces. If you were wealthy, you could all be in one house. It's quite possible that someone was a wealthy person or, or they're outside. I'm not entirely sure, but we'll see. Um, so then the day of Pentecost comes. Remember that Pentecost is 50 days after Easter. It's also a festival of um, first fruits, right? It's a It's a harvest festival. They're all here in Pentecost, uh, 50 days, and they are uh, all gathered to one place and something amazing happens. So let's see what happens. This is Acts 2, beginning with verse 1. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay, so they're sitting in a house. Uh, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So they're inside. I always think they're outside, but they're inside. They're sitting in a house. Some has been a large house. Suddenly the sound of a blowing wind came through the house and shook all the windows and and it, these tongues of fire, these... these uh, I don't know how you would explain this, but it's explained in Scripture as tongues of fire came to rest on each of these people. Um, and that must have been pretty cool. And oftentimes, if you go to pictures of this or iconography uh, of, of this time, you, you'll see sometimes a flame sitting on somebody's head. Um, but it's like a flame. It's a, the came to all of them. It's what seemed to be like tongues of fire come and sit on each one of them. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, prior to this, would you have been filled with the Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, you have the Holy Spirit resting on certain people. They'd say the Spirit of God rested upon this person or the Spirit of God rested upon that person. So you do have in... Um, in Old Testament, that that there would be people that the Holy Spirit would rest upon. But when it comes here, it actually rests on each person. Um, now, this is a major theme uh, that happens at the time of Jesus that is quite pivotal. Before Jesus... Eh, well, I'll say this. I'll say this now, and I might build upon it as we go through the study of Acts. Before Jesus, people see themselves as part of a collective. It's the nation of Israel that's saved. It's the nation of Israel that God blesses. It's the nation of Israel that God makes promises to. How do you know that you're in the nation of Israel? Well, you are circumcised. You follow the Torah. You are married into the nation of Israel. You have children in the nation of Israel. There are things that you do individually to protect the nation. When God blesses Abraham, it's a nation. I will make you a great people. I'll make you a great nation. Um, and God views his people in the Old Testament as a nation, a collective of people that are in the nation because they follow the rules and the laws of the nation, but it's the nation that God interfaces with. And he does come and he, spent, he sends his Holy Spirit upon certain people in that nation to give direction to the nation, to redeem the nation, to bless the nation, to give instructions to the nation, the Torah. You know, he comes on Moses to get the Torah. Uh, he comes on various judges, kings, all that sort of thing as a nation. And it's the nation that, that God loves. But because of Jesus, we make a shift. It's an incredible shift if you think about it. And that's to go from nation thinking to individual thinking. Um, because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to particular people at certain times. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to everyone. And the nation is no longer necessary for salvation. The, the nation is no longer as necessary for people to be in a relationship with God. 
In the Old Testament, it was necessary. In the New Testament, now it comes to individuals. Now this, in um, I've thought about this a lot. In the history of mankind, right, this is uh, a, a, a change. I mean, it's a catastrophic change. Up until the point of, of Jesus, people think of themselves as nations traveling around, tribes traveling around. But because of Jesus and from him moving forward, there's now this component of individuality and an individual relationship with God. And it all starts with Jesus. Today, we have individuality on a massive scale, uh, so much so that people don't even see themselves as part of a collective. And if they, they can pick and choose which collective they're in, uh, they might be a part of a church. You know, you have families, which are collectives. You have uh, social societies. You have nations, all these collectives. But the collectives are now made up of individuals. And the individuals come together to form collectives, if you would say. And now in modern 21st century America, you can actually pick and choose which other than your family and probably the nation that you were born in. But even that isn't as... Um, yeah, fixed as it was at the time of, uh, of Jesus and before. Uh, it is very much an individualized society today, hyper-individualized, you might say. Um, and all of that started with Jesus and the Holy Spirit coming to each person individually and, um, and kind of breaking apart the collective into the individual. Now, you have to understand that people still saw themselves. For thousands of years, they were part of nations. <laughs> but this started a process, a 2,000-year process, of not seeing people as a collective, as part of a group, but seeing people as an individual, as part of a collective. And I will even take it one step further that we will, at some point in future centuries, see people as individuals only, and the collective may go away, except maybe for the family. But other than that, people get to pick and choose which collective they want to be a part of. But it'll be, it'll be most people will be identified as an individual. And, and that will be probably, uh, and I'm just making a speculation here, but that governments will go away, local governments will go away, national governments will go away. There'll be one kind of world government. And this isn't conspiracy theory stuff. It's just if you look at the natural progression of humankind, you can't, uh, you know, a lot of the issues that we deal with that have been brought forward, um, you know, pollution, uh, climate change, uh, oppression in some countries because they're very poor, uh, large, powerful companies that are, or countries that are very, very rich, I mean, all of these things, the only way that that you can have all of these people living together is if there is kind of one world uh, set of rules and standards um, that kind of governs and guides every person. And what's required for that to work is kind of a universal communication. Uh, and that is on the horizon. We, we see Elon Musk and others putting satellites into the air. I think he wants to put 60,000 satellites into the air so that everybody in the world can communicate 
with every other person in the world through the network of satellites and phone communication so that there can be individuals that are connected right to the collective, which is mankind. And all of that's going to be, have to be governed by one kind of central agreement between nations, countries, and people. Uh, and that is, I don't see how that's not on the horizon. I just don't see how that's not on the horizon. Um, and so what you're going to end up with is somebody born somewhere in the middle of Africa to some person there immediately having access to all sorts of things that help them um, understand the world around them, to understand uh, medicine, science, technology, all of that thing that every person born. And this will, this will probably happen in my lifetime. I'm 60. So uh, is 30 years from now? What was 30 years now? I was 30. Uh, I, at 30, I had just received my first computer on my desk at the office. And, uh, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to use this thing. So that was 30 years ago uh, before personal computing came into each individual's life. Uh, and then the internet was invented after that, right? So, um, so in 30 years, uh, it is quite possible that we will make uh, changes to this world that we have never, ever even seen before. And one of those changes is going to be that every person on this earth will be connected somehow to the massive collection of information that we call the internet. And uh, that communication and the information that's contained in that information is going to be critical and vital uh, for us to live together as a, as a thing called mankind. And all of this is individuals that will be in charge of their own life. Uh, they'll make their own associations. They'll do their own thing. And this is in the future. Uh, it's now, but it is definitely coming on the future. And if you want to understand kids that are in their 10s and 20s today, you have to understand that they see this on a level. Uh, they just understand it on a level that we can't possibly understand because we still uh, in my age, you know, we're born into families, we're born, in, you know, and those families determined which collectives we're going to be a part of. Uh, and that, that's guided our life. But the, but the individual um, has access to information that they can pick and choose what they want to do with their life. And, and they want to do that. They want that freedom. They want that flexibility. They want to control their own destiny. All of that started <laughs> with Jesus. Uh, I know that sounds crazy, but Jesus was the epical change of shifting from a corporate thinking into an individual thinking. And it all starts at Pentecost. Why? Because at Pentecost, the tongues of fire came on each individual person. And now each individual person has access to God through his Holy Spirit, as opposed to the Old Testament way of thinking, which was you only were saved by being part of a collective. All right. That's kind of a that's kind of a diversion, but um, but that truly is, uh, from a societal standpoint, stopping thinking about I'm part of an organization that's loved by God to starting to thinking I am loved by God. I don't need an organization to have that direct one-on-one -on -one access with God. It's taken us 2,000 years after Jesus to work through that. Uh, and now we have, I mean, in modern day, Christianity, I think most people think, unless you're part of the Roman Catholic Church or some of these old churches, 
that still have this group type of theology. Um, most churches, most modern day Christian Western churches believe wholeheartedly that each person has an individual access to Jesus. They don't need a mediator. They don't need a priest. They don't need a saint. They don't need something between them and God. It is a direct access to God. That is certainly what we believe in the Lutheran church. It's what Luther fought against because uh, we could get into that, but uh, but it, we all pretty much believe that we have individual access to God, that God loves us individually. And, um, and so that's that, and that all started with Jesus. Um, all right, so all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then what happened? Well, let's just keep reading in verse five. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. All right, so there's, you got the Christians, right? Jesus is there. They're one small group of people, maybe 50. Actually, it was 120. We saw that yesterday. It was 120 people. Um, so there's 120 people. That would be a 2,000 square foot house to have 120 people. 2,000 square foot space for all of them to be gathered. So it's not huge. I mean, it's, oh, it's the size of, um, you know, the average size of a house today is about 2,000. So you got about 120 people all staying in Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem is also God-fearing Jews. God-fearing Jews. These are people who fear God. They love God. They're from every nation. These are holy people. These are part of God's family. Uh, they all speak different languages. But when they heard this, I'll keep reading. So verse six, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Each one heard their own language being spoken and utterly amazed. They asked, aren't these all, uh, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. All right, so... <laughs> Man, there's so much here to unpack. First of all, th that shows that Jerusalem was a very cosmopolitan city. People came to Jerusalem speaking all sorts of tongues, and they had no fear coming into Jerusalem. Normally, you go to a city, and there's a little bit of a, a if you don't speak the language of that city, there's a little bit of a fear that the city might uh, be unfriendly to you. But in, in Jerusalem at that time, there was a universal language. The universal language was Greek. Uh, most of the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, it was part of the Roman Empire that had Greek. And so Greek was the lingua franca of the day. Everybody spoke Greek. So you probably had your own native language that you spoke. If you were in Jerusalem, you might spoke Hebrew. Um, you might have spoken Aramaic, which is what Jesus spoke. They had all these different languages coming into Jerusalem, but most people probably spoke a universal language of Greek. Today, that universal language is, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because it's my only native language, is English. So you go anywhere in the world, there's probably a good chance that people speak 
a native language, and some English. You go to China. Most people speak Mandarin and a little bit of English. Uh, it's funny. You go to India and they speak, uh, you know, Indian, whatever that language is, plus a lot of English. Because if you pull up the Bollywood fo- films on Netflix and watch one, they speak a mix, a mix of native uh, native language, native India, Hindu, you know, native Hindu, and, uh, Indian, and the... Uh, and a lot of English. They, they put it in there all the time. So the cosmopolitan language of that day was Greek, but they're all here in Jerusalem. But there were people speaking in different languages. And these are all Galileans. I mean, they're, they're, they, probably, they were probably correct in that everybody in that upper room following Jesus, he picked up a few people as he traveled a little bit around Galilee, but the vast majority of the people were from Galilee and they're all speaking in other tongues. So this is the power of the Holy Spirit resting on each individual person, giving them the ability to speak in a language that somebody else can hear. Now, um, because of this, there are a lot of people that say, that when you have been, quote-unquote, baptized into the Holy Spirit, you will be able to speak in tongues. And modern-day 21st century Christianity, Pentecostalism, is that you speak um, you speak uh, what they call your, your Holy Spirit language or your love language or this. And I don't know if you've ever been to a, a Pentecostal church. I've been many times. Uh, but they, they babble, basically. They... Um, it is completely unrecognizable to me. It's like their own private language. And, um, but nobody, uh, nobody really understands it except the person speaking it. And we'll see later on that Paul says, listen, that's really not helpful if there isn't somebody there to interpret what this language means and, and to spring these words of God, right? Because it's supposed to be God so powerfully in you that you're speaking in tongues, but there needs to be an interpreter so that those tongues get interpreted around everybody else. I am not at all knocking people who speak in tongues, and it's a very personal, emotional uh, manifestation that God is in their life through this speaking in tongues. It's just that it's not edifying for the church if there's not somebody there to kind of take that and translate it into uh, a language that people can understand. But that's not really what's happening here in Acts 2. Because in Acts 2, you'll understand that there are people that are speaking in languages and there are other people are saying, wow, that's my language. I'm from Africa and they're speaking my language. I'm an Edomite and they're speaking my language. All these people are hearing their own language. And this completely completely everybody that looks at this says, man, this is a reversal of something that happened in Genesis 11. What happened in Genesis 11? Well, well, let's just quickly look at that. In Genesis 11, uh, you have the Tower of Babel. Uh, And I will read from Genesis 11, beginning verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech as people moved eastward and found the plain in Shinar and they settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used the bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why they call it Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world and from there the Lord scattered them over the whole face of the earth. So this, my friends, is where God creates nations. Because prior to Babel, there was one nation, one people, one tongue, one people trying to get close to God as a as a nation, a unified nation that is very, very arrogant. They think they know everything. And we talked about this in Genesis. You can't the problem with humankind is that we all gather together and one person will say something and we have this group think where we say, yes, that's true. And because we're a people that follow our leaders and our nations, whenever somebody comes up and says, this is the truth, if you don't have anybody saying, no, there's an alternate form of the truth, then you um, you go down a path that is not helpful for you because you're not in the truth. So I've always looked at the Tower of Babel as being a blessing from God to divide people that they go down alternate paths so that there's alternate ways and realities of looking at things so that we don't destroy ourselves immediately. You need to have people um, that look at life in different ways. And so what happens here in the Tower of Babel is that God forms nations and forms groups of people that look at the world differently and they're going to fight and they're going to argue with each other. But those fights and those arguments are necessary because we as a people always want to follow one truth, right? I guess you could say. And so once we've developed what that truth is, we move forward with that truth. But we never look outside of our Johari window to see other truths. Um. And then God comes in, Jesus come, becomes flesh and says, I'm the truth. And then he gives the power individually to each person. And it's taken us 2,000 years, but at some point we will have a communication knowledge across various people as individuals, but we'll listen to other people, we'll listen to individuals, and we will uh, be able to see the truth. I mean, there is only one truth, but we'll, we'll get closer and closer to the truth because of massive communication, individuality, and all sorts of people saying, my voice should be listened to uh, because I have a portion of the truth. There's still God's truth as as in the word, uh, as the, the truth that Jesus gave. But there is a lot of exploration and truths around the world that we have to still discover. And then I can get into that, right? Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That means have children. It also means learn the truth. <laughs> subdue the earth. As the commandment in the garden, we're supposed to learn the truth. But it takes a lot of people working in a lot of different areas to understand the truth. Anyway, so I, I'm just going on all sorts of tangents here because uh, I just find all this stuff interesting. What happened at the Tower of Babel? God created nations. Why did he create nations? I believe that he created nations so that we would get closer and closer to the truth so we wouldn't have one big group think that was happening in Babel. Um, but at Holy Spirit, right, everybody's speaking in their own tongues. We're all coming back together as one nation. But that one nation is the church, the, the followers of Jesus Christ who are going to be the church and they're going to expand through the world and they're going to redeem the world back to one nation. So there's two futures for mankind. One is a future where the teachings of Jesus 
um, inform how we come together as one nation. And another, which is against the teachings of Jesus, they come back into one nation. And maybe that's what the battle of Armageddon is, is that you have the church and then you have the not church. <laughs> you have two nations fighting against each other. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's things I speculate about. I've always said, as I look at the, at the world around us, that you're going to end up with two corporations. You're going to end up with Amazon, Apple, Google, that's going to have, you know, Raytheon, all, you know, one huge for-profit organization that's going to rule the world as one thing. And then you're going to have all the nonprofits and all the people that aren't in it for themselves and profits, but they're in it for, uh, you know, may, helping mankind to grow and to be, uh, you know, in the nonprofit world. Um, the, maybe that's maybe that's the two nations that battle each other. I have no idea. Or maybe, maybe it'll be something else. I don't know. Anyway, this has been a hugely philosophical um, presentation today, and I apologize for that. But these are the, unfortunately, these are the crazy things that go through my brain whenever I think about this stuff. So um, I think we'll end it there. Uh, would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for this day. Um, bless these ramblings to your glory and help us to meet again together tomorrow when we continue to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.